Welcome to Jerry Talks, a blog and podcast challenging the conventional views on aging. Join us and together let's redefine aging. Now, here are your hosts, the founder of Jerry Talk, Dr. Duran, and the brain behind the mic, Adrian Rodriguez. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Jerry Talks. Another great episode today. Uh, Adrian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, doctor. Doing great. Adrian, uh, we have a very special guest today. You know, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, a program that has been uh, very popular here currently in Las Cruces, has helped a lot of residents here. About uh, The program is called Mobile Integrated Healthcare Co uh, uh, Program, and it's by the fire department. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, Paul Ford, tell us a little bit about Paul, uh, Adrian. Yeah, you know, actually, I got to read through a little bit of this presentation that we're about to go through uh, a while ago, and uh, I'm very excited. He's going to give us some great information. Mr. Ford, Paul Ford, has been a firefighter for 11 years. He's the current mobile integrated healthcare coordinator. He's been doing that for the past four years. In essence, we're, we're in healthcare. Uh, everyone talks about first responder. Mr. Mr. Ford is definitely a first responder, and he's not only responding and his team, the firefighters here in the great city of Las Cruces are responding to all these uh, uh, emergencies, but they're looking at how they can prevent people from having to go to the hospital and, and overuse of the hospital as well. So this is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant program to put together the mobile integrated healthcare. I can't wait to hear more. So thank you, everyone. Go ahead, Paul. Well, uh, uh, good morning, Dr. Duran, Adrian. Thank you all for having me today. Um, I certainly enjoy talking about mobile integrated healthcare. Um, it's a very important part of the fire department. So I'm going to share my screen right now and see. Um, so can you all see what it is that I've got going on right now? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Okay, so we're going to talk about mobile integrated healthcare. Um, that's a, a term in the fire department that a lot of people don't know about right now. What is it exactly? Um, and uh, so let's get started. So the fire department, as people are, are may or may not know, has been around for a very long time. And these fire safety um, concerns over the years have led to the development of the National Fire Protection Agency in 1896, and we were really aggressive in fire prevention as the fire service. We developed a lot of fire codes, standards, and uh, we worked very hard to make the community fire safe. And uh, as a result of that, um, you know, fire has remained relatively stable over the past 30 years. Um, but at the fire department call volume continues to grow. And the, if you take a look at this graph right here, these are the nationwide fire department responses from 1980 to 2018. This is the, uh, the most up-to-date data from the National Fire Protection Agency as of 2020. And you can see that fires have actually gone down um, over the years. Um, but look at the blue line that the call for emergency medical services is way up, way off the charts and probably well over 25 million calls for uh, for 911 related services by the fire department. So what is that all about and what's going on? Well, if we take a look at the Las Cruces Fire Department, we also have a great number of 911 calls. We have 19,000 calls for services, but only 1% of those are fires. 89% of those are medical. And actually, the, 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 this last year from 2018 to 2019, 
we have almost a 9% increase in 911 calls. That's quite a bit. And that, that, that reflects the scale that we saw on the last page. Uh, but um, also look at the amount of lift assists, falls, and public assists. If you add all of those 911 calls together, that, that, compromise, uh, that, that comprises almost 20% of our overall call volume. So that certainly shows a need there for something. And so what we decided to do is we looked at it a little bit and uh, a lot of people get upset because they say that, you know, uh, there are half as many fires as there were 15 years ago, but there are 50% more people paid to fight them. Well, the reality is that's not really what we do in the fire service. Yes, we have the knowledge, skills, and abilities with which to fight fire. We train very hard on that and nobody else is going to do that. So we take ownership for that. We work very hard and we're very efficient at it, but it's really only 1% of our call volume because what we're really doing is we're doing emergency medical care. Mm -hmm. Hands on tens of thousands of patients a year and that really makes us a healthcare stakeholder in the community, but unfortunately we're not traditionally viewed as a healthcare provider. So I think we can all um, uh, say that 911 over the years is becoming a, a, a standard for the at-risk population to access healthcare. Well, why is that? It's because that uh, individuals know that when they call 911, very quickly they're going to get four highly trained individuals that are going to get there within four minutes, that are going to do a patient workup, an ambulance is going to arrive on scene that you don't have to pay for up front that will give you a ride to a hospital so you can see a physician and get your prescription. And if you don't have a ride to get home, the hospital will offer you a taxi cab voucher to get home. How do we combat that level of service and save healthcare and get people to uh, receive the right service for the right patient at the right time? So much like the transition that the fire service did in the 80s to starting and doing emergency medical response to remain a viable entity in the community, we are now looking at transitioning into this fire-based care coordination and community-based models, which has uh, become known as mobile integrated healthcare. But really, what is mobile integrated healthcare? Well, it's an overarching phrase that involves several different genres of pre-hospital non-emergent wellness services. And I'll pretense this by saying that we don't do all of these things, but I think it's important to know like some of the different types of services that are emerging in the fire service. One of them is community paramedicine, where we do in-home readmission prevention using point-of-care testing and treatment. That would be patients like your CHF patients that they need a little bit more service at home in order to stay out of the hospital. Um, and uh, certain fire departments across the nation are taking ownership and engaging with hospitals to provide those types of services. Uh, there's 911 nurse triage where you call 911 and you get uh, a couple of questions get answered and then you get fielded to a nurse to discuss uh, for consult and navigation to try to keep people out of the emergency room and make sure that they're getting the, the most appropriate level of care for them and not accruing erroneous expenses for themselves in the healthcare system. There's mobile behavioral health care, which is sometimes also known as mobile crisis where people go out in the field with a social worker, a paramedic, a police officer, and uh, they provide crisis to people who are having behavioral health emergencies and navigate them towards definitive care instead of being in the hospital. But the most common one that most fire departments start with is the one that we currently do, which is care coordination, resource navigation, and social services. So let's explore that a little bit. So what are we doing in the Las Cruces Fire Department in mobile integrated healthcare? 
is we're bringing health and human resources to the public in their home. And we do focus on those individuals who utilize 911 to obtain services that can be obtained elsewhere. And it may be somebody that's called 911 over 200 times that year, or it might be somebody that we just went one time and the paramedics who have a very uh, high index of suspicion for these types of cases will say, this person's very much at risk. What's going on right now is unsustainable. We're going to generate a referral for the mobile integrated healthcare program to go out there and determine what, uh, what, what type of needs they might have and really do a comprehensive assessment to determine um, uh, what needs to be done there. Um, so we're, when we go there, we're, we're identifying the barriers in the patient's healthcare, and, and what we do is we direct them to resources that already exist in Las Cruces to improve their quality of life and prevent recurring 911 usage and hospitalization. So why does the fire department do this? There are plenty of people that have social work training, community-based training, and all these other types of wraparound services in the community. Why is the fire department getting involved in this? Well, we've been around for hundreds of years and we've developed a trustworthiness in the community that cannot be duplicated. We're very committed to the citizens that we serve and we are certainly a keystone of the healthcare system. Many of the clients that we go out and see have already engaged with us on several occasions. So um, when we are looking at these patients and we went out into the community, we weren't really sure. We thought maybe we had an idea, but we weren't 100% on the type of patients that we would see regularly. But what we very quickly determined is we really see two different types of patients. The first is we see senior citizens who are on Medicare who have mobility issues in the home. And I'll talk about why this is important here in a second. The second type of patient that we see isn't quite a senior clinically, but they are a senior. They are a patient that's usually around the age of 55 to 58 years old. They, have, they are on Medicaid and they have a, a, some sort of a behavioral health challenge, a substance abuse challenge, and a mobility challenge. Um, and those are really the two types of patients that we see. That second patient that I'm talking about is the one that calls 911 over 200 times plus a year. Um, so why is this happening? Why are we encountering these patients so much? Well, the, if you whittle the whole thing down, what it is is that we are, uh, these patients need personal caregiver services in the home. <laughs> Medicare does not cover that. And that service is on average between 20 and $25 an hour. So somebody that needs a high level of care and they need wraparound services and they wanna stay at home and they didn't qualify for Medicaid, uh, that would be between 15 and $16,000 a month that they would have to pay. And so what you really have is you have this reverse bell curve where you have patients that are in severe poverty that qualify for Medicaid and they get a certain amount of personal caregiver services. And once you are at 138% of the federal poverty guideline or above, you don't qualify for those services. And so until you are independently wealthy and can pay for that private service, you don't qualify for those services. And so if you wanna stay at home, if you have those mobility challenges, you will call the fire department because the fire department is the only free personal caregiver service agency 
in the community. We come to your home and we provide custodial care services and it doesn't cost the patient or the MCO anything. So the MCO is of course Medicaid. Medicaid provides, I've seen as high as 48 hours a week for caregiver services and we have some clients that we work with that are on that, but those clients that get up to that point usually require 24 hour services and uh, brings me to the next point is if somebody is alert and oriented and competent, they can refuse any care at any time. That includes going into a long-term care facility, even though that's in their best interest. And so a lot of the patients that we see on that point number two right there are patients that they need that long-term care, but they have consistently refused. And so we go over there and we provide toileting services for those individuals every day. Um, and there really isn't anything that anybody can do about that. And so that's really um, uh, a lot of talk on one slide, but really important for people to understand that that is really the, the hidden epidemic in the fire service is that we have this issue right here that, we're, that we have, have identified and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do to solve this. Um, so now that I've talked about that, I'm sure it's going to come no surprise that the types of, of challenges that we see when we do go out and visit these people is that 87% of the time it is a senior that is at home and it's some sort of an unsafe situation with mobility. Uh, it could be squalor, it could be hoarding conditions, or it could just be the fact that yes, they have some mobility issues. They're a transplant from some other community. The son lives in Spokane, Washington, and there just really isn't anybody to address some of these issues in the home. Uh, of those individuals, mobility is the primary issue 70% of the time. 66% of our clients have transportation difficulties. And then um, I'm sorry to report that we also have a lot of untimely discharges out of various facilities to include the hospital, skilled nursing, uh, because these patients going home is not the best option for them, but their insurance has stopped paying they have refused to go to long-term care. They don't want to pay the copay until it's figured out. So they end up going home and it's not safe for them. Uh, cut, close the end. And so we get referrals for those types of situations as well. Uh, sometimes I get referrals from adult protective services um, on top of everything else. And I think that's important to recognize as well. So what does that mean? And why do we have these types of challenges in Las Cruces? Well, Las Cruces is a senior retirement community. Now, of course, this is old census data from the last time that we had the census, and we know that the census is only as good as the amount of people that we're actually able to engage in and get good data from, but as of the old census, we have 14% of the population is seniors, and 29% are living alone, and 8% have income of less than 10000 Well, that's unfortunate, but those are people that we can place on the Medicaid waiver if given enough time with which to do that and we can maybe get some personal care services in the home. But 24% of the population has less than $20,000. That means that there's 16% of those individuals that don't qualify for Medicaid and never will. And that means that there are 660 seniors, and remember, this is old data, but that means that at any given time, there are there's 660 seniors that live alone that won't qualify for home aid services. That was, this will impact the fire department. This will impact home health. This will impact Dr. Duran's practice because these patients will have challenges with getting a, a good health outcome. 
And then while we're on the topic, 25% of Las Cruces seniors are veterans. Not all of these seniors actually seek services at the VA, and some of them don't even qualify for services at the VA. So that, this is really challenging all around. And what I call this, I call this the silver tsunami, because this is getting more challenging every day. We have more and more seniors that are turning 65 each day. And this will continue for the next year that we have 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 each day. Now, assuming that all of these seniors continue to, uh, to survive every year and have good outcomes, that means that there is a potential for the healthcare system to absorb a whopping 62 million seniors by 2027. The healthcare system isn't designed for this. This is not sustainable at all. And that's why I call it the silver tsunami. We have a very large problem, and I really don't know what we're going to do on the macro scale to solve this and save healthcare. Um, so it takes a lot of different resources to, uh, that we work with together to try to facilitate good health outcomes when we go in and do these needs assessments for the community. One of the uh, relationships that we're very proud of is New Mexico State University. We got into an agreement with the NMSU School of Social Work and they give us two master's degree social work students uh, as interns to deploy with MIH as part of their training and their in-field internship uh, every school year. And we're very happy to have those students. They work very hard. We're able to get more work done with them helping me because uh, without their help, I'm just one person and I get a lot of referrals every day and I'm not really realistically gonna be able to see all those people, but we can get just a little bit more work done every day with these, uh, with these interns. So these are the interns that we had last year. Uh, that's Jack on the right and then that's Charlene on the left. And we're very proud to say that all of the interns that come and work with us in the fire department always get the, the job that they want in the area of social work that they want in the, in the, uh, in the place that they want to have it. And so we're, we're very happy about that and we're, and we're very happy to continue with this partnership with NMSU because we think that this is very important uh, for the social workers to understand the pathway that these patients take and the challenges that they have and the resources that are available in the community with which to help them. The second one that we're very happy with is Memorial Medical Center Family Medicine Center has a residency program and we have developed an MOU with them for resident physicians to deploy at various times with MIH. Why is this important? Because a lot of residents, all of their experience is in a clinical setting and they don't necessarily uh, get a lot of opportunities to be in the field in people's homes to see what things look like. So if you see a patient and you tell them that you want them to take this medication or you want them to come next week for an appointment, these physicians now can, uh, can determine more critically, well, what is that gonna look like for this patient when they're living in squalor and they don't have a car and they don't have any social supports? And so it really helps the physician to look at things on a macro scale and understand that sometimes it's not as simple as just prescribing a prescription and following up with a patient. That's not always realistic. and so. This allows those physicians to see people where they're at, understand the type of challenges that people have, and to think more critically about the care that they provide. Um, these are some of the resident physicians that have worked with us over the past uh, couple of years. We're, we're very happy to have them working with us. We've had a lot of good health outcomes just from home visits that they've seen 
because they're able to call physicians, advocate for things, get patients on hospice that we encountered and things like that. Um, and then the final one that really became important in COVID for us was small business pharmacies. So we were getting a lot of referrals as soon as COVID started that people need assistance with picking up their prescriptions, people need food packages and things like that. Well, one of the realities of, of prescriptions is that vulnerable populations don't have the means with which to pick up their prescriptions and with which to go and pick up these prescriptions. So a lot of these people are just nickel and diming their way and hoping that they get their prescriptions. Walgreens and CVS auto pay is too complicated and they don't really have a delivery service. They put the, uh, the, these prescriptions in the mail. And we all know what the Las Cruces mail system is like. And then on top of that, I've talked with seniors that they've gotten some other patients narcotics, they've gotten the wrong patients medications. So these, um, these prescription delivery services that are out there and exist are not really in the patient's best interest, probably most of the time. Um, and I, I, I know that that is a very strong statement that I made, but that's the reality. And so I like small business pharmacies because they do auto pay over the phone. They pick up and hand deliver prescriptions for the patients. And also small business pharmacies, they don't have any qualms about calling the doctor and advocating for a different prescription. They don't have any qualms with calling the, the, uh, the insurance company and trying to determine why something wasn't covered and, uh, and really taking the time to do what is in the best interest of their customers because they have the time to do it. And, uh, and that's just what mom and pop pharmacies do. And so we advocate for that, um, for, uh, for small business pharmacies to kind of take over being the, uh, the, uh, the serving pharmacy for those individuals. Um, and they also, uh, they, they do pill packs for non-compliant or complicated clients. And I just think that that's just a really, that's a low hanging fruit to have a good health outcome for those patients. And we did a lot of that during COVID. Um, and so now let's talk about Dialeride. Remember I talked that 66% of our clients have problems with transportation. Well, I think it's important for the community to know that Dialeride gives 300 seniors a ride every day to places like dialysis, doctor's offices, the Munson Center, um, uh, uh, wound care, all, all sorts of things. Every day they do that. And we have a lot of seniors in Las Cruces and that service has historically been free to seniors, but it's a 20 day notice because of the amount of seniors in this community that need transportation. Now, there is a disability clause where if you have a disability that has been determined by your physician, then it's $2 a day or it's a uh, correction. It's, it's $2 each way for that individual, and then it's a 24 to 48 hour notice. But you'll see that I superimposed an MMC discharge paperwork for one of my clients that had Wernicke-Korsakoff uh, um, alcohol dementia. And, uh, and you can see that, first of all, um, when you discharge an individual home that has Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome and dementia, trying to get them to go to MMC Family Medicine Center um, tomorrow to see Dr. Rowland is unrealistic just based on their level of cognition. And, and on top of that, how is this guy even going to get to that appointment? It's not going to happen. And so, I mean, even discharges um, are set up for failure 
when the patient can't get to the physician to be seen at the time that the emergency room is deemed that they need to be seen for what they were seen in the emergency room for. Um, and this is in case you're interested, these are the dialoride vans. You see them all over Las Cruces. It's not like they don't exist. They do, they're very, very busy, but there's a huge gap in the community and more services for transportation are needed. Um, so knowing that for two years, we wrote grants to, um, to the state to see if they would provide us financial assistance to give us a wheelchair van. We cited data, we talked about all the things that I talked about here today, and they just didn't give us the money because that was so out of the box from what the fire service does that they just didn't understand why we needed a wheelchair van. Well, so after two years of trying to do that, we moved some funds around and we bought, brought our own, uh, we bought our own van. And actually just before I got on here, I took uh, one of our clients to get an MRI and a CT scan. Um, and then the day before that, I took somebody to, uh, uh, to Dr. Duran's office for an appointment and then took another person uh, to, um, I don't remember where the other place was, but I'm, I'm, we're doing a lot of transportation because it's necessary for the good health outcomes for our at-risk clients. And I wish we could do more for the community. I receive a lot of calls to provide transportation for individuals, but we simply can't do it for everybody because that would be all we were ever doing, was we would be just be transporting patients back and forth. We wouldn't be able to do any of the other work that we do for our clients. So this is a little bit of an old data uh, table, but it kind of gives you an idea of what it is that we've been doing. So for the people that graduate from our program, we have a 93% reduction in 911. And on average, we have 11 to 12 clients that we see at any time because when we have more clients than that, things start falling away because case management, you really have to follow up with these patients on a regular basis. Um, we've investigated way more referrals than 178 at this point, especially since COVID started. In April alone, we went on, we usually average about 50 to 60 visits a month, home visits in patients' homes, taking care of business 60 times a month on average. In April, we went on 180 some odd home visits because there was that much need at that time when the crisis first hit in the community. And we do have well over 316 referrals at this point. But I think what's important to understand is when we first started, about 250 home visits that we did that first year. And now we're, we are well over 600 and probably going to break 1,000 this year for the home visits that we've done. Um, so um, the fire department has mission statements and visions, and I think it's important that that the, everybody understands that what is it that we are going to make a promise to the community that we're gonna do? Well, we're gonna make that promise that we're committed to the program and we will constantly strive to identify those individuals in Las Cruces that have unmet needs, especially those that are calling 911 frequently. And we work tirelessly to assure that those individuals, primarily the elderly in our community, will be given the assistance that they need to reduce those gaps in their health care. Um, and so this is my contact information. This is my email and this is my phone number. Um, and uh, please, uh, if, you're, if you are concerned about somebody, 
um, please generate the referral. I know that I said that we're very busy, but we need to know who's out there and who needs help. We need to have all of those referrals because we need to be able to demonstrate that, um, that there are more referrals than people that we can see so that we can demonstrate value and expand our program and provide more services to the community. So I, I really appreciate the time uh, to talk, talk about our program and I thank you all very much uh, for, for the time to present this. And uh, I'd love to discuss this further and answer any questions. Great, Paul, thank you very much. You know, that was uh, really, really interesting. You know, you know, obviously we knew a little bit of uh, what you were doing, um, uh, what the Las Cruces um, um, Fire Department was doing, but you know, obviously not to that, not to this level, not knowing exactly, you know, like the number of phone calls, you know, that you guys uh, really get. And that, that usually comes to, you know, it's, it's easy and it's cheap to call 911, but, um, and I think, you know, the overutilization of 911 is, especially here in Cruces, pretty sure nationwide, obviously, is, is very concerning. I do have a question for you, Paul. Um, you know, you talked about, you know, uh, getting the number of referrals, showing eventually the city or showing the state about, you know, the, the program and how to, um, how potentially we can expand or how the city or the state can actually help with grants uh, to get the program a little bit bigger. Is that something that has been discussed at a different level? And uh, is that something that has been discussed state-wise? Is there any other police departments in New Mexico that are you doing this to? Right, so yes, there are other uh, fire departments in, uh, in New Mexico that are doing this. So Albuquerque has a program where they're reaching out to those at-risk populations. Uh, and Santa Fe Fire Department has a program where they're reaching out to at-risk populations. But because um, these type of programs take a lot of faith, they take a lot of internal funding, um, these types of programs are usually limited to some of the larger fire departments that you would come to expect across the nation. Um, but I think that's important to discuss that <coughs> some smaller communities are also gonna have problems. But when you really take a look at homeless, overdose, um, uh, seniors, transportation, all those types of things. Those, a lot of those are big city problems. Yes, there are smaller communities that have that, but I think that communities, when you get into a really small tight-knit community, the community comes together to kind of nickel and dime and solve some of these challenges. I think that the, the, these types of challenges become out of control and really challenging in some of these larger uh, metropolitan areas. Um, so uh, you were talking about grants. So we have written grants many times in the fire service for a variety of things. And we've, uh, we've gotten into uh, some agreements with certain entities uh, to do certain types of work. So when Molina was one of the MCOs here that was providing Medicaid, we got into agreement with them and we were going out and we were reaching out to some of their at-risk individuals uh, to determine um, <clears throat> Uh, what it is that they might need. They were people that have fallen off the radar. Uh, they haven't made contact with these individuals in a while. And uh, we identified a lot of unmet needs in that population and we were able to facilitate a lot of good health outcomes and we were able to utilize the funding that we received from that type of grant work to purchase software to uh, gather more data for the clients that we serve in our mobile integrated healthcare program. Um, and then we, have, uh, we also have a grant that we're currently working with right now through uh, CARA um, and uh, 
that is to provide overdose outreach to individuals that overdose in Las Cruces. And so what we're gonna be doing with that funding is we're gonna hire a social worker and we're gonna go out into the community and we are gonna provide follow-up for every overdose that happens in Las Cruces and determine whether or not these individuals have primary care. Do they have, um, <clears throat> do they have uh, behavioral health? Are they interested in medication-assisted treatments? Can we give them some Narcan? Do they know where the services are in their community? And we're gonna do that for every single overdose in Las Cruces. And, um, and we're gonna be doing that for the next three years, but also we feel that it's very important to find any way possible to get a social worker for our programs. Um, and so that was one way that we identified that we could get a social worker uh, to assist us with providing community-based services for the community. So yes, we do have grants. Yes, we do write those grants. And I think that, um, that we will continue to do that in the future because it allows us to expand our, our program and provide those services. That's wonderful. Can I ask a question real quick? Um, what, what's the cost uh, ratio that you're, that you're, you're saving the, the municipality? Uh, we're saving Medicare quite a bit. Bit with this program, it's a wonderful program. But what's the cost benefit of this? How much are we saving, let's say on a national scale, uh, just Medicare in general, uh, uh, over usage of Medicare funds? Well, yeah, I, so I think that that is difficult to quantify because you never really know how many times um, a patient is going to call 911. But let's say that I, right now with the pro program that we have, I have myself, I have another paramedic that, that is over here helping me right now as I develop the uh, opioid overdose program. We have two social work interns that don't necessarily cost us anything, so that's huge return. Um, so let's say that um, the cost to run the, uh, this program per hour, let's say it's roughly $60, $65 an hour. <clears throat> let's say that we've gone on 800, 850 home visits. Now, let's say that for every one of those home visits that we go on, that we have, um, that we have uh, reduced that call, uh, a 911 call one time. So the, the cost of the wear and tear on the engine, the cost of the fuel on the engine, the cost of the four individuals on the engine who are then there, at a scene that potentially is, is preventable and could have been handled a different way, and now they're not available to handle an emergency in their district for somebody else, every time that engine rolls out of the engine bay and goes down the apron, that's anywhere between $250 and $300 an hour. So that, and that's just the internal cost savings for the fire departments. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many healthcare dollars that we save, but let's say that we keep somebody out of the ICU um, for alcohol and alcohol withdrawal. So we have a guy and he goes to the, the ICU every, every, uh, every 20, 25 days. That, uh, being in the ICU is, is 10 plus thousand dollars a day. Mm -hmm. um, and that's potentially cost that would, depending upon whether or not it was within 30 days or not, that cost is either accrued by the hospital where they cannot, uh, they can't bill for it because Medi uh, Medicare, Medicaid isn't going to pay for it, or it's, um, 
or it's accrued by the MCO for whatever reason. Um, but regardless of whether or not it's a hospital losing dollars or it is the MCO that's spending 10,000, how many of those patients do you think that, um, that happen every day where it was preventable if we could have done something a little bit differently? So I think that the cost savings of having somebody going into the field and doing case management is difficult to quantify, but I don't think anybody would argue that we're saving healthcare dollars. We're improving healthcare outcomes. We're saving costs internally with the fire department, and uh, and we are potentially um, in, improving or saving available beds in the emergency room in the hospital. Um, I think that's all very safe to say. Um, it's just very difficult to quantify because you never really know how many times a patient is going to call nine one one. But yes, I yes, there is savings. To be the cost savings are definitely there. They're definitely, uh, at, at some point, you know, it could be quantified, hopefully one of these days <laughs> for, for grant purposes to, to be able to explain the grant better. Uh, but yeah, you guys are definitely saving just by the explanation of it and keeping, out pe keeping people out of the hospital, using the ER as their doctor uh, is often a practice that's, that's done a lot. Uh, that is definitely saving them quite a bit of money. Paul, uh, you know, I have a question, you know, something that has been kind of hot here is the, the relation or some of the referrals that we get with uh, APS, with Adult Protective Services. You mentioned here that um, occasionally you get some phone calls for, uh, from APS because what happens in my case, in my practice, if I found something, you know, about people calling the 911, uh, several times, or I find eventually some signs or concern about uh, self-neglect, you know, we call APS or, or uh, obviously um, uh, abuse. Um, what is your relation or what kind of work have you done with APS? Okay, so I work very closely with Adult Protective Services because we, um, not necessarily duplication of services, but we receive referrals for the same people. Um, Adult Protective Services is an important aspect of the community because Adult Protective Services has funding to make people safer at home under normal circumstances. So they have a certain amount of hours of uh, Title 20. So there's a state statute that says that individuals that are at home that are unsafe that need caregiver services can receive about eight hours a week of personal care services that the state pays for. And so nine times out of 10, when you go see a senior and they say that they have a caregiver at home and they're there roughly eight hours, it's probably because at some point, somebody somewhere generated an adult protective services referral. Adult protective services went into the home, determined they needed personal caregiver services and they got eight hours. So eight hours is not really a lot, but it kind of can nickel and dime somebody along, but it's not necessarily over time going to ensure a good health outcome, but it's better than nothing. Um, and I think that really kind of touches upon a couple of different things with adult protective services. So adult protective services, you would think that because they're a state entity, that they would have the power to go into somebody's home, take a look at the situation and say, this is definitely unsafe. Um, we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to place this individual in senior foster care or a nursing home or something of that nature. But that doesn't happen in New Mexico because in New Mexico, the patients have uh, all of the right to make a decision, uh, albeit a bad uh, healthcare decision, uh, as long as they are determined to be um, competent. 
Now, the strange thing about that is that when these patients don't seek care, they don't get seen by somebody like Dr. Duran to do a cognitive assessment. Uh, they are not, they're seen in the emergency room, but a cognitive assessment is not made. They're wanting, uh, they want to admit the patient. Maybe the patient goes upstairs, but a cognitive assessment is not ordered. Then nobody ever really determines that this person isn't capable of making an informed decision. Then they make the decision that they don't necessarily want to go to skilled nursing or to go to long-term care, and then they end up going back home. And the only thing that case management can do, or Dr. Duran's office or some other healthcare entity like a social worker at a dialysis clinic can do is generate an adult protective services referral. But again, the only thing that adult protective services can do is go into the home, document, determine that some personal caregiver services are necessary, um, maybe get up to eight hours of personal care services. They have some money to do some chore services. I've seen them utilize funds, uh, state funds to do hoarding house cleanup. But that is the limitation of what it is that they can do. Um, they do some case management where they might take somebody to a doctor's appointment. They might get some, uh, some chore services in there. They might get eight hours of personal caregiver services through an agency like Addis. But that's the limitation of what it is that they can do. And so really, when you generate a referral for adult protective services, it's the same thing that it, 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 it's the same thing that we, we're all familiar with this in, in healthcare is the liability issue. So the liability issue dictates how a lot of things go, as you, you all well know. So if a patient can't self-transfer and they need to go have an MRI like my client today, how is that patient going to get the MRI when the particular facility that was going to do the MRI won't lift up the patient onto the table to have the MRI? I have to lift the patient up on the table to do the MRI. Um, and how many patients can I lift up on the table to do the MRI? Well, that's how this world works because of the liability. So we're actually taking ownership for the liability. And that's the same thing. So when you see a patient and you're concerned about their living situation, or they smell like cat urine, or they can't walk, but they don't want to go to the hospital, and they don't have anybody taking care of them, or they're not taking their medication, or they keep canceling your appointment, you don't really have many choices other than to generate a referral for adult protective services. And when adult protective services goes over there, if the person opens the door and they're alert and oriented and they say they don't want to talk to them, guess what? That's it. And that's one of the major issues that we have in this community is that we have a lot of seniors that need care, but they're allowed to refuse that care. And there's nobody, including adult protective services, that can advocate for beneficence for the individual in the community over patient autonomy. Now, now that I've said that, hold on a second, because I haven't even gotten to COVID. So when you're talking about COVID-19, Right now, Adult Protective Services doesn't have any funds for chore services, Title 20 personal care services, home cleanup, or any of that. And actually, they have been going through systematically and taking a look at some of the Title 20 personal care services that they have and removing it from certain senior citizens because they don't have the funds right now with which to provide those services. Now, I don't know how that came about. But I'm sure you can imagine that I've gotten some referrals for people that, guess what? They had services at some point, now they don't have services, and we're picking them up off the floor. Or we went over and determined that they don't have any food, 
or they don't have this or they don't have that because the the little services that they did have guess what they don't have those services anymore and so yes adult protective services sometimes generates referrals for me i sometimes generate a, a services from uh, a, a generate referrals to adult protective services because we're all trying to do the same thing we're trying to help the community and it's not necessarily duplication of services because under normal circumstances APS has things that they can do that I can't and I have things that I can do that APS can't but right now I'm getting a lot of referrals for people that are living in squalor hoarder conditions uh, and we're doing a lot of the, the the home cleanups right now because there really isn't anybody else doing that right now and if we don't take care of that these individuals will lose their uh, their section 8 housing uh, they'll be in a tent at Community of Hope, and some of these seniors are very elderly and have mobility issues, and that's just not realistic. So we're, we're doing everything that we can to have people be as safe as they can where they're at. We're doing the best that we can with what we have like we always have, but guess what? It's a little bit less every day. So I hope that answers that question. It's very convoluted. COVID has created a lot of problems, and uh, and uh, so do I feel like uh, referrals for adult protective services should still be generated? Yes, I do. But it's also important to understand what it is that they can and can't do under those circumstances and what it is that I can and can't do under, the, under similar circumstances. Very interesting. Thank you, Paul. I think, you know, it has been very helpful. You know, Paul, um, for, for everybody who's hearing, is there any way that, you know, you know, the community can help this program? They, have you guys done any charity program, something to, to help you guys? Well, I think one of the challenges is that there's, uh, there's anti-kickback statutes in the city. So, you know, if somebody comes and shows up at my office and I haven't had lunch for the past three days and somebody brings me a sandwich, that's not really in the violation of anything. But if we were to receive funding um, from an external source to provide services, that funding should be coming from the city of Las Cruces to expand the program. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that being said, we have found certain ways around that. So we have nonprofits that we work for um, that help us with certain things. So we take donations for uh, wheelchairs, rollators, other hard to find durable medical equipment, um, we have, a, uh, and we usually navigate those towards the Lions Club, which has been a really great uh, entity with us. They have, uh, we've worked with Cavalry Baptist and, uh, and Lions Club to help us pick up food packages. They're taking food donations for their food bank and they're delivering that food to the needy. Um, they're, um, they're taking donations for um, durable medical equipment that people need. Uh, until we can get them to the doctor and get a, a, a piece of durable medical equipment ordered. That's been very helpful for us. But I think that, and, and, and we will continue to take those donations and we'll navigate those donations towards the Lions Club. And the Lions Club will then in turn assist us with referrals that we generate for them. They can go pick up food packages, deliver it to those individuals. Uh, they can, uh, I can go pick up durable medical equipment from them and I can take it to that individual to, so that they have something that they need. Um, and so, yes, we are doing those types of things. Um, and I think that stuff is very important, but I think the most important thing that we need is that this program in the fire department is very new. 
we need to ensure that we can continue to expand and that we have the support of the community so that we can continue to be here and provide services uh, to the community. So what am I saying? I'm saying that, yes, you know, we can take some durable medical equipment and I, I, if somebody calls me and they have some stuff, I can navigate them with where to, to send it to. But what we need most is we just need the love and support of the community for what we're doing. So John Ku Public can maybe petition uh, the, the city government to expand funding in this area. Is that something that we can do? Yes. Um, so obviously, I very much would like some assistance. I'm just one person right now, and we're slowly trying to expand because we think that this is the future of healthcare. Just down into people's homes, doing comprehensive needs assessments, determining what it is that they need, making sure people are getting to doctor's appointments. Um, expanding um, with programs like Julie's program, House Calls of New Mexico. I, I think it's really important to have physicians that are able to go meet people where they're at and provide services. And I was always very thankful to have Julie when I was first starting out through your program, Dr. Duran, where she was going out and she was seeing people in the field and helping me with people where it just wasn't realistic for whatever reason to get them into to see a provider, but there was a lot of assistance that was needed for that individual. And so I think that's also very important. And I, th I think that's something that, that should be expanded upon also. But yes, we definitely, I, I, I've kind of uh, identified a niche here in the community of things that are needed. I'm working very hard to try to provide these services for people. We definitely need help. Um, we need services such as mobile crisis. We need nurse practitioners out in the field providing services for people that aren't gonna make it to the doctor's office. We need more transportation. I'd like to see more uh, uh, clinics actually have transportation to provide to individuals. Uh, Dialysis, I think, should be doing their own transportation. I think the Cancer Center at, at, uh, at Mountain View uh, has called me before wanting us to take somebody over there to, to be admitted to, to provide services. I think that, that some of these larger stakeholders should be providing their own transportation and should be expanding the social services that they provide for the community. Um, uh, and so, yes, I think that so much is needed. And I'll take any help. <laughs> But I, I think that it's not just a fire department problem, it's a community problem. And so I think everybody needs to take a little bit of ownership for what it is that they can do to improve the situation. Is it transportation? Is it having a social worker at an urgent care? Is it having a social worker at a doctor's office? The answer is yes to all of this, because I think that the, the future is having social workers everywhere to touch on patients to identify needs and to spend a little bit of extra time to help them. Um, so yeah, I'm a big proponent for raising awareness and, uh, and, and, and receiving assistance in that way, but also um, making sure that everybody understands that, uh, yeah, how can we help, Paul? How can we help? Well, take a look at your own uh, entity and the services that you provide and determine what it is that you can do to improve services for the, the, the clientele that you serve, you know, regardless of who you are, whether you're Tender Care, Southwest Center of Aging, um, Fresenius Dialysis, Mountain View Memorial, Mountain View Urgent Care, Memorial Urgent Care, whatever it is, you know, I think there's something to do at all those places to better health outcomes for the patients that you serve. Is there a volunteer component uh, to your service? Do you guys um, take volunteers? Do you 
use them? So um, that's always been really complicated because um, you know of the city and that thing that I was talking about all the time, liability. You know, mm -hmm. I'd like to take every single volunteer and send somebody out to go clean an elderly lady's yard. But guess what? What if I take a volunteer and they get up on the roof of somebody's house to fix an air conditioner because the lady's nine, 90 years old and it's 150 degrees outside and then they fall off of the roof. Who's responsible for that? Right, right. The stinky part about the whole thing because I very much would like to take every single volunteer, help me solve all these problems for all these people. But it becomes really challenging in that way. Um, so if anybody is ever interested in volunteering, they can call me and I'll navigate them to some nonprofits in the community that would probably be very interested in, in receiving some, assist, uh, in, in some assistance to do good in the community. And of course, um, you know, we're very thankful for even, you know, the support of just calling people or talking to people and word of mouth. In Las Cruces, Word of mouth is very, very important. If you have a restaurant and the service is terrible and the food is horrible, guess what? A lot of people are going to find out about it. If you have a restaurant that serves a really mean cheeseburger and the French fries are really good and everything, guess what? A lot of people are going to find out about it. Well, that's the same thing here, you know, and I've been out there grinding and trying to do good for the community for a while. And I hope that people are talking good about the services that we're doing because I think the most important thing is to raise awareness, but also I appreciate any advocating that anybody is gonna do uh, to help us expand our program. Very interesting, Paul. You know, I really appreciate it. I'm hopefully that with this, we're creating definitely awareness to the community. Uh, for sure has been an eye-opening for both of us, I'm pretty sure, of all the work that you have done. We, we do appreciate, I appreciate your passion Obviously, you seem to be very passionate, trying to help the community, trying to help the seniors. And, and we definitely, I'm very interested on how potentially we can work together in the future and see how we can help and, uh, and uh, to some degree and, uh, and uh, help for the community. Adrian, you know, just to kind of summarize, uh, Paul, we, we do appreciate it. That was a great conversation. Uh, I think we have learned a lot. Adrian, anything else that you would like to share us? Yeah, you know, um, I, I've got my two businesses, uh, uh, Tend to Care Home Health and, and the private duty side, Crossroads In-Home Care with the caregivers. Um, I, I know a lot of our viewers and listeners are, are people in the industry as well, other home care agencies, facility uh, uh, reps and all that. Um, I'd like to challenge them, you know, I'm going to get involved with Paul and see what, uh, what we can do to assist their, their, uh, their program and and spread the word definitely and get people knowing about the, the services here, the, the, med, the, the mobile integrated healthcare. And I'm gonna challenge the rest of our viewers. So what can we do to, to help out, you know, and, and look in there and, you know, the phone number's right here, it's on the screen. Give Paul a, a call and, and say, hey, this, this is what we wanna help you guys out with and then let Paul take it from there. So that's my challenge to the rest of Las Cruces and, and, uh, and other communities that follow our show. Paul, thank you very thank much again. For having me. Absolutely, I was glad to be here. I appreciate any collaboration. I mean, obviously I have, I've collaborated with a lot of different home health agencies, including yours, Adrian, sure. over the past years. And uh, Dr. Duran, I've always been able to collaborate with the Southwest Center of Aging to facilitate good health outcomes for patients. So I appreciate that as well. But thank you all for your continued support. And uh, I look forward to uh, collaborating in the, in the future and discussing how we can make the community better.
Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, guys. Thank you all Thank very you. much. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Have a good have a good morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find us on YouTube and online at jerrytalks.com. We always love hearing from you, so please feel free to send us an email or leave us a comment on social media. Check back weekly for new and exciting episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog and podcast. Please check out letscelebrateaging.com, an exclusive clothing brand just for you. Until next time, and remember, let's celebrate aging.